This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network and the Asian Studies channel. This is Victoria Lupashko, and today we are joined by Professor Enza Han, Associate Professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at University of Hong Kong. Hello, Dr. Han. Hi. Hi, Victoria. How are you? Good. How are you? And um, welcome to to New Books Network and Asian Studies uh, channel. And thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, Asymmetrical Neighbors, Borderland State Building Between China and Southeast Asia, published by Oxford University Press in 2009. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And, um, you know, as as interviews for New Books Network start, first I'm going to ask you, um, you know, to, to uh, tell us a bit more about your work, about yourself, um, you know, what, um, what made you interested in this project? How did you come to it? Um, you know, what are, you know, what is it about Borderlands that, that made you write a book on it? Um, and also in the, in China's relationship with Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, so I came into um, the uh, studies of Myanmar, uh, Burma, and, and also broadly Southeast Asia when I started working at the SOAS, uh, School of Oriental African Studies at University of London uh, in 2012. And at the time, I was in some ways be- between projects. My first book project was on ethnic politics in China. And then at the time, was, I was in some ways looking for a new area of research that would be and motivate me and also make it interesting. Um, so it was a time, the timing of it was very interesting in the sense that um, um, at that time, around 2011-12, um, there were major political transitions going on in Myanmar. And then and then particularly relevant is that it also uh, was a hot topic at the time uh, was about changing dynamic uh, relations between China and Myanmar. So that really made me interested in in, in topic would like to you know, pursue further. Um, so then I started taking Burmese uh, language, uh, which was offered at uh, SOAS uh, for free for staff members. So I started taking Burmese for, for two years. And then that's how I got into uh, sort of studies of Myanmar and also uh, broadly uh, relations between China and Myanmar and, and, and Thailand uh, uh, in, in, in the process. So um, in, at the time, we have, um, I have some colleagues who have strong connections with uh, some of the ethnic armed groups in, in, in Myanmar. And that's how I made a, a first a field trip uh, to Liza uh, in, in, in Kachin, uh, in area occupied by the Kachin Independent, Independent Army, um, right across the, the Chinese border. And that's how I started my field work uh, from 2013 onwards. And then um, that's how, in the end, uh, this book was a product of, of that. That's amazing. And it's so rare to find programs that offer Burmese and Thai and, 
you know, uh, languages that are so essential to the study of Southeast Asia and Asia in general. But, you know, you, you just don't um, don't offer this, right? At, right. At I mean, every so my, my, my Thai actually can go way back. Um, I did my undergraduate at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Beijing Foreign Studies University, and I studied Lao, and also like Thai is very similar to Lao, so I also learned Thai at the time. But that was like more than twenty years ago, and uh, and then during my graduate studies at the US, I never really uh, my research was mostly on, on on China. So it was after so many like in some ways after twenty years of hiatus, and I came back to the studies of of, of Southeast Asia, and in some ways it's quite easy to pick up Thai because. Uh, you know, it was a language I learned when I was much younger. Um, but then somehow, you know, Burmese is much, much harder because I'm started learning in my, in my 30s and it's, it's much more challenging. Um, but, but still, I quite appreciate, I quite like that, the fact that I can learn languages. And also I saw us provide a sort of good, uh, very good, um, you know, environment, like in terms of language uh, teaching, but also really good library, library resources of, of, of materials uh, from um, from Southeast Asia, so that really benefit a lot from from access to these these materials. That's great. That's great, and you know it's also encouraging for for our listeners to hear that you know you can go back to to things that you did in your undergrad, or you know like these things sit with you or stay with you for a long time. And, yeah, I think you so. know. Yeah, but also it's never too late to learn, learn a foreign language. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, as much as I want to ask you about Burmese and Thai and Lao and everything, um, I think we have to to get to, to the book. And, um, you know, the book is comprised of nine chapters, including the introduction and the conclusion. And you have an amazing, rich bibliography in Chinese, Thai, Burmese and English. So that's that's for me, that was uh, very, very interesting. And, um, you know, in the introduction, you start by presenting the tense context at the border between Myanmar and China in 2013, the, the year where uh, where you start, uh, right, the, um, the introduction with. And uh, in this delicate situation, the question of comparative uh, nation building is of utmost importance and brings in notions of sovereignty, uh, cultural politics, state power, military power, and, and so on. And the introduction offers the key notions developed later in the book, um, such as, you know, you, you state uh, on page four that you offer a comparative historical account of the state and nation building processes in an organic upland area that shares lots of similarities in terms of geography and ethnic diversity. Um, but yet it um, has been increasingly incorporated into a set of neighboring modern states, uh, in this case, um, uh, Myanmar, Thailand and, and China. And in doing so, the book achieves a few goals. And I was wondering whether you could tell us more, um, you know, about these goals and how you conceive this comparative historical count between the three uh, case studies that you offer. Yeah. Um, so I think um, on, on, on the theoretical level, I think um, um, this book is more about how we can understand um, a nation building and a state building as 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 as, as cross na- cross national transnational kind of process rather than as something. Um, bounded by national boundaries, as we often uh, think. Um, so that's one of the theoretical uh, perspective that I want to push forward. But more importantly, I think, um, particularly in 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 in, um, in Western academia and the studies of Southeast Asia and the studies of China are uh, quite arbitrarily separated, right? And in fact, many scholars have talked about how this demarcation of Southeast Asian studies as different from China studies was more a deliberate 
um, act during the Cold War period um, as for the purpose of counter communism and um, so you know, many scholars have talked about uh, this sort of, sort of arbitrary demarcation uh, of these two areas of research. Um, but in fact, um, you know, China and Southeast Asia are deeply in- connected, uh, not simply because of geography. Um, I mean, they share a long border. And in some ways, the nation building process in what we can call contemporary China, that historically are deeply tied with what was going on in its neighboring states as well as in Southeast Asia. And at the same time, um, the, uh, the processes that we had witnessed is that historically, for example, in the formation of the like, Vietnamese state or the formation of, of a Thai state, um, also can be traced to historical connections uh, with what we call uh, China uh, today. So that's why um, it's very rare to come across studies that put China, Southeast Asia in a uh, same context, uh, other than, for example, people who studies overseas Chinese as a process of uh, migration, um, let's say, 19th century. But still, historically, um, the, the, the process of, of, of interaction, um, not simply in terms of people, in terms of goods, but also in terms of religion, ideology, and many other things, uh, in some ways, we can call, like, geographically, uh, the mainland, right, in some ways, like, the, the, the Right now, we call China with what is right now mainland Southeast Asia before the arrival of modern states. We're essentially an organic whole, right? There's not any particular boundaries that was the line of division that we consider today as a boundary between states. But historically, it's more fluid, right? That people moving back and forth, and uh, and there's not such a thing that we consider as this or oh, this is China, this is Southeast Asia. You cannot easily differentiate that. Um. That's why I, I hope from with this book, in some ways, try to push against this sort of arbitrary demarcation between China studies and South Asian studies, and somehow put them together into one uh, one volume and have some kind of communication uh, between them. And I think that is the intention, and I hope that achieves some element of that in in, in it. I, I absolutely think so, and it is very important to to position them together in my opinion because you know it's um well first of all right you would definitely go against academic boundaries right or departmental boundaries um but you would gain so much in terms of knowledge and in terms of conceptualization of different um different notions right you you do it for the neighborhood effect right the state and the nation building um but also so much more right in terms of migration in terms of um cultural exchanges and and so on and ethnic studies um right for it, i think right? Uh, one of the main main thing i want to emphasize was that uh, particularly the borderland we're looking at right Upland Southeast Asia, the historically is more of organic whole, in a sense that um, it's it's much more similar. For example, you can say that southwestern China, with upland South upland uh, Upper Burma or northern Thailand today, then for example, similarities between southwest China with uh, like let's say China proper or with like you know eastern part of China. I mean, historically, there are more connections between Southwest China, such as Yunnan, Yunnan with Xi'an State, or with Northern Thailand, or with, uh, with, with, with Lanna, etc., rather than the, with, with the rest of China we consider as part of one nation, right? Um, so this is purely because of, of the fact of geography and that it's much more deeply connected uh, as an as organic uh, entity. 
at the same time, that the purpose of the book was more to 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 explore and investigate how this organic entity that we consider in this upland Southeast Asia became sort of demarcated and incorporated into different nation states uh, as a product of modern uh, nation building uh, process. Uh, I would say, I would argue, started pretty much more intensively uh, from the mid 20th century. Um, so that's essentially the, 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 the starting point of this project. It was to try to tell the story of how China incorporated its southwestern borderland, how Thailand consolidated its control in northern Thailand, and how and somehow the, 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 the failure of, of Burma uh, to consolidate uh, its, its control of, of northern, uh, northern Burma um, because it continued to be the case of state fragmentation and with ongoing insurgencies and you know, in terms of the continuation of ethnic armed groups that along the borderland area continue today. Right? So I think that is a story that the book tried to, in, tried to achieve, to tell. And it does so beautifully. So, you know, I, I really think um, these things do come out in the chapters and, you know, they're very well described in, in the introduction, um, as well are the, the key terms, right, that you bring up. And um, my next question was was about them, uh, whether you could tell us a few more details about the key terms that you, you, you thought of to, um, you know, um, basically uh, bring, you know, the book together and how are they interrelated uh, with the arguments that, that you make? Yeah, so I think there are two key terms I think the book uses uh, throughout. And, and in some mm-hmm. way they are um, empirically difficult to differentiate. That's, that's basically nation building and state building, right? Um, and in, in, in common uh, usage, people often uh, use them interchangeably. Um, and I think there are conceptual differences between nation building and state building. Um, state building, um, in a more Weberian sense, uh, emphasizes the presence of the state uh, in its um, military bureaucracy and, and other elements of, of modern, modern state that make its presence uh, in the peripheral regions of, of a state. <laughs> right, so there's a lot of tautology here. Um, but but essentially, it emphasizes how um, and the, you know the the, cent- cent- the central state uh, managed to build up its uh, grassroots uh, presence uh, in in a country. Um, so the indicators of such uh, state building uh, process would be, for example, like uh, the introductions of a state school system uh, in in terms of the establishment of ad- administration in terms of bureaucracy. Uh, in terms of capacity to tax population, right? So in, 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 uh, at least in, in political science literature, often the ability to tax uh, it's it's the population and and the percentage of, of, of taxation coming from uh, as a percentage of GDP taxation as a percentage of GDP often is used as as indicators of how strong a state is, right? So that's some of the the indicators I was looking at in, in the book was specifically on, on, on those things, how we can look at uh, that the, the presence of state has been consolidated uh, in, in a particular borderland region. Now, nation building is a, is a totally different concept, even though people use it as, as a substitute for state building. Um, so nation building, a nation, we generally consider as, 
as a group, people have shared common culture, common language, right? Common identity. So nation building in this context, I define more specifically as how the modern uh, conceptualizations of national belonging has, in a very uniform sort of a standard, um, imposed from the central state, has been accepted and internalized by peripheral people that previously did not speak the same language, did not have the same culture, uh, and might have different, totally different. Uh, historical imaginations, but somehow, as a result of this process of modern nation building, and then became uh, a Chinese, became a Thai, became a Burmese. You know, so that is 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 a process that uh, I will call nation building, right? In terms of ability to speak Thai, the ability uh, to understand historiographies of, of, of Thai Thai nation, uh, and that is basically the, the process. How those sort of northern hill tribes later on became Thai, right? And um, same with how this, the ethnic minorities in southern southwest China later on identified being part of the Chinese nation. Um, so that is essentially uh, I would uh, conceptually differentiate between nation building and state building, and these are two processes I think obviously deeply integrate, uh, deeply intertwined with each other. Right. In, in some ways, you cannot talk about nation building without talking about state building. In some ways, you know, um, sometimes state comes earlier than nation. Right. In, in this process, in the sense that it was the presence of state bureaucracy, it was introductions of modern school, school system that produced outcome of a common nation. Right. So in a sense that the nation was an outcome of, of the state effort to create this common cultural um, unity. And so I think that is, is the process I, I laid out uh, with the book. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, you know, I, it took me a second because I was thinking, yeah, of course, through, you know, through education and the way it's imposed uh, by the state, right, and um, the ways in which textbooks uh, shape, right, um, ideologies and shape um, and you know it's it's a dual dual carriage way, right? That that happens in 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 the three three countries, but you know also in the world. So, um, but more so in in states that are that neighbors, right? Right. But also, like I mean, I guess you know, um, conventionally, I would say conventionally, people tend to con- uh, tend to assume that nation comes early, earlier, in a sense. Oh, that is in this nation later on they form a state. Um, but that's not that necessarily accurate for most of the countries in the world in a way that often uh, that the nation national belonging was essentially is an outcome of, of state action um, and particularly in this type of a peripheral you know remote sort of um, um, areas with variety of, of, of ethnic minority groups living there um, they the reason why in the end they become uh, in, you know incorporated into this different nation states and as, as became the, the product of, of, of this nation building process um, is the outcome rather than the the, 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 the cause. Right? So that's why I also I think there's, I, there's a need to differentiate these two process. Sure, sure, yeah, absolutely, and you know it's um it's it's a very important theoretical move, right, to to make in the first chapter because you know from that on you can um you can you know build on that um and I think that chapter two comes very very nicely you know uh, to to it and lays out the empirical and theoretical foundations. Um, the the chapter two it's entitled the neighborhood effect of state and nation building. 
Right, and here my questions regards the bounty of indicators. You already mentioned one, but you know there are others as well. Uh, and there's also a lot of empirical data you used in support of the specific argument. So um, I was planning to invite you to walk us through the ways in which you conceptualize the differences between the three states in the borderland region, um, you know, looking at uh, empirical data and all the work you've did in the field. Right. Um, so as I said early on, right, sometimes often um, the measurement of state's presence, people use um, percentage of taxation um, as, uh, as part of the national GDP as indicator of uh, of how strong the ability that the state will be able to tax its population, um, um, so this is common commonly used indicator in in the political science literature. Um, but then empirically, it's quite hard uh, to have a uh, good data uh, at the ground level uh, in terms of, so for example, like taxation as a percentage of GDP often can be obtained at national level, but not necessarily at the regional or local level, right? Um, so that's why um, sometimes uh, those indicators are difficult to compare at the same scale, at the same unit, unit analysis. Um, so, so that means sometimes we have to look for alternative measures. Um, so that in, in, in the book, I used a uh, literacy rate, uh, so in, which often is, is outcome, uh, a, sort of a proxy to understand how, how much the state will be, will be able to introduce the school system in the peripheral regions that you know, people will become literate uh, in the lang- in a national language, right? Um, there's also um, indicators about health provisions. Um, so, um, you know, in, in a sense that many of the social development indicators, right, can also be used as substitutes for um, state presence. And that's the, the outcome of how strong the state is and to be able to deliver those uh, public goods for its citizens. And I also use some indicators about um, economic development. But then again, economic development uh, across the borderland often is difficult to obtain relatively comparable data, right? And this is much more difficult in, in Myanmar's case in the sense that, um, um, you know, Myanmar state does not produce much statistics, uh, particularly for economic development in its peripheral regions. Uh, because, some, you know, it's, it, the state doesn't, does not actually have much solid control. Um, so I also use some satellite data, um, looking at nightlight uh, images, um, which often has been used to 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 as to measure um, uh, economic activity. Um, so we do see that disparity of of, uh, of of economic development across the borderland between China, Thailand, and and, and Myanmar. Right. So the the Chinese state and the Thai state tend to provide much more than than the Burmese state, right? There's more economic activities uh, on, along the Chinese border or along on the side of Thai border than, than within Myanmar. Um, so these are all the indicators I use to, to at least roughly um, um, demonstrate that is this disparity, right? Disparity in terms of how, how much, so for example, the, the Chinese state and the Thai state have successfully consolidated that presence and the control over this uh, borderland area, however, the, the Myanmar state has not really been able to effectively um, do the same. Uh, so that's so. These are the the the, the, the I, I need. I, I thought there's there's need to provide some sort of um, like I say hard facts in terms of this, the the comparisons, right? How much dis- differences there are 
uh, and then that's how set up the the, the, the empirical analysis uh, that we we see in other in in, in the chapters follow. Sure, and also um, you know we we shouldn't forget the fact that this uh, the, these regions are also uh, ridden with conflict, um, at least uh, right in the Burmese um, side, right? Yeah, yeah. So exactly. So the um, the the simple fact that the, the, you know, in a Weberian sense, Myanmar. Uh, yeah, so Myanmar and Burma, people often use interchangeably, right? But in the sense that the Myanmar state has not really sort of monopolized its its legitimate control violence, right? And that's with varying sense that in a sense Myanmar has its fragmentation of state presence um, within its its territorial boundary, right? So that's not the case in either uh, China or Thailand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then you know, of course, that there's some sort of spillage effect that um, you know. Um, what I call spillage, but then you very eloquently call neighborhood effect that that happened. Well, yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's actually yeah, you're right. It's, it's transnational spillage, you know, in terms of the inferences. I mean, we're, we're going to talk more later on later chapters. But in terms of you know ideology, in terms of like uh, economic development, is all is always a spillage uh, from from neighbors, you know, from from Thailand to Myanmar, from from China to Myanmar, etc. Right, right, and there is some sort of historical pattern, right, that that happens there, and we we get to that in chapter three, um, which you know it's it's also entitled the historical pattern of state formation in upland uh, Southeast Asia, right, and then you you get more into the uh, historical uh, details of um, of this region, upland Southeast Asia border area, in terms of the uh, the dichotomies that happen there, and one of the most prevalent is the upland upland and valley, right. Uh, um, the the two that happened there, and um, you know, I was just curious about a historical development of this relationship and how does it affect uh, and reflect the present day conditions. Right. So, so this, um, you know, the, there's one very prominent uh, book and scholarship on, on a topic was uh, by uh, James Scott, right, on the art of not being governed, and he specifically talked about those mountain people that there's and uh, the the people who escaped uh, the, the 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 control of, of valley states, right? Um, yeah. So this is in some way this is 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 is, is a geographical factor in a sense that um, that this part of the world is is extremely mountainous, um, mean meaning that the terrain was very difficult to to um, to access, um, and because of you know high mountains, deep river valleys, but also uh, prevalence of tropical diseases such as such as, such as malaria uh, historically, um, yeah. so so that's why it, it created a um and sort of a, you know the, the different patterns of the human habitation, um in uh, in this part in, in in this region that you have mountain people uh, who uh, usually uh, usually practice different type of agricultural practices and also did not have much centralized state bureaucratic structure and in comparison with the central like valley states which have access to like petty rice and irrigation and etc they tend to be much more um let's say um uh sort of uh bureaucratic what's the right word so in more bureaucratized yeah bureaucratized uh, in its uh it's in its administration yeah. Um, so the so the, the story I I, I I I told in in chapter three was more how um you know the historically we can understand let's say the the, the Chinese empires um uh, you know, the Qing Empire 
and you know, also like Burmese empires and as well as the Thai kingdom, etc. They interact historically, and then and one thing that we um, we do not talk about very much today is that this part of the world uh, historically there were lots of uh, principalities, like small. I would, not, I, would not, I would not even call them kingdoms, but essentially principalities, right? This, this so-called uh, like the Dai uh, principalities. So, so these principalities, there are many of them, right? Probably you can you can probably count like hundreds of them, uh, small sort of like you know uh, principalities. And then they historically they had um, different type of uh, uh, relations with those powerful empires in in uh, in its uh, you know its neighborhood. Right, so they yeah. sometimes and and then they um, uh, some pay tribute uh, to to China, some pay tribute to Myanmar, to Burma, some pay tribute to 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 Thailand, to Siam, um, and, but then they were never really uh, part of um, the, the the bureaucratic administration until uh, much later in the twentieth century. Um, so so those principalities today they all disappeared, right? They all have all been incorporated into this three uh, nation states. But historically, they were much more integrated with each other, right? There were lots of intermarriages uh, among them, and they, they have much more common sort of cultural uh, uh, similarities with each other. And then so that is also the, the, the story I was about mentioned that in, in, in chapter three, how the prominent, uh, the comparison of three prominent um, um, Dai principalities, like so, one in in, in China. So that basically that's Sichuan Banna, like Sichuan Banna, right? Which was historically a big uh, Dai principality, um, and one in 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 in, in, in Myanmar today is Jiangdong. Jiangdong is also a quite big uh, principality, and then also for northern Thailand will be Lanna. So these these three, in some ways, are comparable in terms of their size, um, but then today they obviously become part of three. Different nation states, um, and um, so so the, the, the so the, the emphasis in 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 this in this chapter was that how come you know this the from the telling the story of these three different Dai principalities and their fate later on being sort of carved up into the three nation states and how we need to understand uh, from the point of view of those city states this this principalities rather than from the views of central. Empires, right? So from, from from Beijing or from 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 Ayutthaya or from 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 uh, in what in Ava uh, in Burma. Um, mm-hmm. so, so that's why I, I think it's 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 uh, the, the, the 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 purpose of this this chapter was really to tell the story uh, of this sort of uh, this region that was not very often told uh, from a very sort of this locally based vision, uh, so locally based view. Uh, of historiography, rather than from the viewpoints of the Central Valley states. Um, absolutely, yeah, and you know, as as you're talking, I'm also thinking about right, like blood relations, intermarriages, oh, yeah. and you know, um, all of that 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 happened, and I'm I'm sure it still has some resonances today. Oh, yeah, maybe. I mean, so today, um, so there are you know, there, there's no nation states. It's well, probably Thailand, right? In some ways, have more cultural connections with the, those like. Die, uh, die places, you know. So that, like, you know, um, in some ways, linguistically, um, in, in some that's similar, right? But not necessarily the same. Um, so, um, so in 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 Burmese, in Myanmar, Shan State, right? Shan State is essentially the, the Burmese word for die principalities. Um, 
and and also you have the southern China, southwestern China. You have like you know the uh, particularly like Xishuang uh, Bana, and as well as like in Dehong, it's also lots of like Thai speaking population. Um, right. So, so these people, even today, right? I mean, there are a tremendous amount of uh, cross-border uh, uh, networks uh, linking them together. And also, you know, the other one I did not mention is Laos. It's similar, sim- in, in some ways, culturally similar as well. Um, but then, um, so the so these these networks of people, right? Even though the the, the state border um, has been introduced, but then they maintain close family uh, connections and uh, and other. Uh, linkages, religious linkages with each other, uh, but not simply them, right? There are many, many other ethnic groups living in this region that are in effectively trans, trans, transnational, transboundary ethnic groups, right? You can say like the Kachin, uh, they, the Burmese call them Kachin, but Chinese call them Jingpo, but they, they, they have that very similar um, uh, in terms of language and culture, and, and they do in, like, you know, uh, have deep connections across the border. There's also Wa, there's also like uh, Lahu, there are many, many other ones, like those groups living in mountain regions in this area, and then they disperse across the, you know, the diff- different countries. But then they all maintain uh, such uh, cultural connections with, with each other. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Absolutely. And, you know, also, um, I think if we, you know, if we think at historical trauma and um, what, what, kind of brought them together besides, you know, blood uh, relationships and economic relationships, the fact that there, there has been conflict in the area for a long time and, um, you know, uh, must have created uh, some relations or broken some relations that influence mm. how things are, are today. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, mm-hmm, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're right. I mean, this is, this is the historical story I, I told in the sense that we're, more connections and similarities in these people across national boundaries, right? But today, I mean, uh, sometimes we we can we as as, as I mentioned earlier, then we we have to admit that um, you know the modern state has been effective um, in in instill some sense of national belonging and also in terms of instill some sense of, of cultural uniformity. Um, so uh, today, for example, you can say that you know in northern Thailand, many people speak centralized Thai uh, dialect, Thai language, right? And that's essentially the, the the result of the Thai school system. Similarly, Mandarin uh, as as the uh, sort of lingua franca within China, and has also become more pop, you know, popularly uh, accepted uh, in this borderland. Uh, region, which was not the fact, for example, 50 years ago, right? So these are all outcomes of, of modern state building. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, speaking of, um, of historical trauma, I think one important thing we have to, to take into consideration is the Chinese Civil War and also, you know, um, Second World War and, and you know, um, others as well. But uh, what you know? What I'm trying to to draw the attention to is specifically to to chapter four, uh, right? Entitled uh, "The Spillover of the Chinese Civil War and Militarization of the Borderland." 
And, um, you know, because here we, we get to the KM, KMT's role and legacy, specifically in the border areas between the three states. And, uh, you know, starting with 1940s, when the KMT played a significant role in Burma and uh, Burma and uh, Thailand, um, and it was either by proxy or it was just directly, uh, you know, influencing politics. So, you know, my curiosity regards the, the um, you know, some details about this important spillover, like how did it play in the three, uh, three locales, but also, you know, if we bring them together as a whole, what can we, can we say of this, uh, the importance of the Chinese Civil War? Right. So the Chinese Civil War, I mean, today people usually, you know, uh, associate with Taiwan, right? But the Chinese Civil War also has deep implications for mainland Southeast Asia, and particularly for, for I would say, for Burma and, and Thailand. Um, so at the time, in December 1950, that's the time PLA entered Yunnan, and then you have the KMT retreated and then they, they entered Burma. And then and so sections of the KMT troops, um, the, you know, they, they occupied the Burmese Eastern Shan state for a, a decade, right? Um, so it, as a invasion army, right, um, they, 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 they took control of, of this territory. And obviously, as part of the Cold War intrigues, right, the reason why they occupied Eastern Shan State for such a long period of time was because of the Cold War necessities of counter-communism, right, by the U.S. and um, through its proxies, right. So the Americans supported uh, the KMT activities in Eastern Shan State and provided them with logistics and other things via Thailand. Right? So Thailand was basically the, the proxy for American Cold War uh, um campaigns uh, in upland Southeast Asia. So that's the reason why um, the, the presence of, the, of the, 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 the KMT troops in, in northern, northern Burma has led to the direct militarization of the borderland area and also the, 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 the outcome. The other outcome was the, the development of a, a military, military government uh, in Myanmar, in Burma itself. And I think that Mary Canahan, for example, has talked about this uh, previously. Um, similarly, in Thailand's case as well, that the the, the, the presence of the, the KMT troops and um, in the in the Burma's Eastern Shan state, and later on after being kicked out from Burma, and then they they entered Thailand, so they occupied northern Thailand for some time as by invitation of Thai state, obviously. Um, but they they provided services for the Thai uh, Thai military, and uh, they. They were the buffer against the communist infiltrations from the north. They patrolled the border and, and as militias, um, and then and, and 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 in some ways they, they 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 were part of part and parcel of of the of the the, the, the development of drug trade, right, the opium trade uh, from from this region. So this so we can say that you know the the, the development of the golden triangle in the Cold War period as a haven for a poppy plantation and opium, opium uh, uh, production was was deeply tied with this history uh, of the Cold War and the KMT presence uh, in this region because the the opium was effective was was effectively used as the financer for the war activities uh, in uh, by a variety of armed groups in in the region and um, so we do see the negative legacies of the KMT uh, uh, in in northern Burma, uh, in in those northern upland Southeast Asia, that um, that that 
previously has not. I mean, you know, people do, do talk about it, but somehow usually it's uh, many of the existing literature tend to be written by uh, people who are descendants from the KMT and they tend to, they tend to rom- romanticize about, you know, the, the duties of the, the KMT to save the nation, which is China, um, uh, against communism and then the sacrifice they made in, in this area. But then they often ignore the, the atrocities committed by the KMT in Burma and also the fact that they are in other people's territories, right? And they, 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 were, they were invading army. Um, so so those ones were what, what, during the Cold War, obviously, was, 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 was told as a way, justification for, for, the, for the purpose of, of counter-communism. But then today, when I look, look back at this history, and this was actually, in fact, quite ugly, uh, sec, you know, ugly side of the, of, of the Cold War, in a way that led to the destabilization of the uh, Burma's northern uh, territories and also led to the development of, of drug trade and, and, then, and, 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 and has continue, continue, and continued to be uh, the center for, for illegal, illicit uh, drug uh, production. Right? So that, these are all the negative consequences uh, from the Cold War. And also, you know, um, um, few of the, the, um, um, the, the bad reputation, in a way, of the, the Golden Triangle, I mean, it, it's warranted, but, um, you know, with, with just having this myth of that uh, particular area Mm. Um, so I think it's, it's both at the affective and effective and, you know, political and economic, um, you know, stages that, um, you know, the fifties actually in the cold war, of course, influenced this, this area to, to an extent that we, we still see today, mm. um, and, um, you know, influence the historical, uh, development, um. And of course, uh, also the, the the revolutions, right? So the Cultural Revolution that happened, you know, during uh, the Maoist era, and and you know others. And the, as as you entitled Chapter Five, right? Communist revolutions at the borderland. Um, there are uh, multiple moments of unrest in the borderlands, and uh, China has a strong support for communist insurgencies in Burma and Thailand during the sixties. Um, and that, again, has very long-lasting effects. Um, so, you know, kind of going on the same idea of, um, as in Chapter 4, where we looked at KMT's uh, role, um, I was wondering about the Cultural Revolution and the PRC's influence uh, over the state and the nation-building uh, efforts that happened uh, in the other two countries, uh, specifically during the Maoist period, but also afterwards. Right. So... So during the, the mid 1960s, that's the time when you you have domestic radicalization uh, in, in in China, and also in terms of Mao's intention to export revolution uh, around the world, right? And then particularly in its immediate uh, neighborhood, right? And then and so that's why we do see that a, di- a direct link link between um, the Chinese government and communist insurgencies in Burma as well as in Thailand. Um, so the, the, the restart of the Burma's communist insurgency in northern Burma um, as a continuation from what the Burma's Communist Party had did earlier in lower Burma, and also the start of the communist insurgency by, communist, by the Communist Party of Thailand uh, in, in, uh, in northern and northeastern Thailand uh, from the mid-1960s. Uh, so during this process, there were, um, um, you know, uh, financial, um, logistic, and even personnel support 
uh, from from China to 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 foster revolutions in 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 these countries. Um. So the um. So the legacy of that was that the the the, the presence of this insurgency that went on for. In Burma's case, ended in 1989. Uh, in Thailand's case, like slightly earlier, in the early 1920s. Uh, sorry, in the early 1980s. Um, so the um, the legacies of that um, was the, um, the the presence of um, the, in, in Burma's case more specifically, in a sense that the Burma's Communist Party uh, had um, many uh, legacy groups. Uh, which we today we call them ethnic armed groups, but then they, they were previously all part of Burma's Communist Party. And in Thailand's case, the, the state was much more, um, the Thai state was more uh, effective, perhaps, to respond to, re- to respond to the um, to the challenges provided by presented by the the, the, counter, the, the, the insurgencies, and uh, and then you know the people have you know, uh, and then the, through the use of border patrol police, and then. And managed to to carry out a more successful counterinsurgency campaign, and and not in ter- not simply in terms of military uh, counterinsurgency, but also through the process of, of of consolidating its its state presence by introducing like Thai school system, etc., and also through fostering development programs in in these peripheral regions, and then somehow um, managed to contain uh, the insurgency, but also later on, uh, you know, uh, through a, nas- a series of national pardon, uh, amnesty and pardon, that uh, all the uh, Thai communist insurgent- insurgents were, uh, were incorporated back into Thai society. And that's why today you don't really see much of those legacies uh, of, the, of the insurgencies during that time. But in Burma's case, uh, the, the, the communist insurgency at the time continued to, to fester uh, today. Um, in China's case as well, um, the, during the Cultural Revolution period, um, the b- southwest border was, in fact, the target of a revolution uh, by the, the Chinese state as well. That means that um, the, 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 the Red Guard youth, right, who, um, who were sent down to the countryside, but also to the borderland, Right, so the the, the 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 you know you look at those those slogans from the Cultural Revolution. It, it not simply mentioned going to the countryside, but also meant meant that going to support the borderland. Right, um, so uh, is, is, is the Chinese Mandarin is is Bian, right? Bian is Bianjiang, right? That's basically the peripheral borderland. So yeah. uh, in southwestern China, um, like in 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 Xishuangbanna, and as well as in many other peripheral ethnic. Uh, regions received large number of those youth, urban youth, um, from um, from the rest of China, from from Beijing, from Shanghai, from 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 Chongqing, from many other places. Um, so the presence of those uh, those m- mostly Han Chinese youth uh, in the borderland uh, has an indirect effect of of culturally um, sort of um, have a have a Imprint on on the people and the landscape uh, in, in in this area, right? It is at the time more Mandarin uh, education will be introduced, right? And and and, and you start to encounter those uh, Mandarin speakers, and basically that's how this sort of uh, cultural uh, common language started to develop, right? Um, so it was 
Also, uh, during this period, many of those like state uh, state farms were introduced uh, to produce rubber and etc. They also, you know, um, changed the landscape of of this tropical sort of jungle region, and then. And made them more sort of suitable for uh, economic development and etc. Right, so you, you do see this both uh, physical as well as cultural um, consolidation of the state uh, in terms of its landscape, in terms of its its cultural um, uh, 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 relation, cultural influences in, in the region. So, so that's uh, essentially the the whole. When we talk about communist, communist revolutions at the borderland, it was not simply just um, you know the, the like militarization, but then they also have many other uh, political and cultural legacies as well. And you know, again, um, um, you know, on top of that, right, the Cold War that was looming, right, mm-hmm. uh, over everything, and um, the, the the consolidation of the state and the nation as we we you know uh, we define it today. Uh, was essential in this, you know, gearing up towards this this goal of of constant crisis, mm. right? Uh, right, exactly. Yeah, and then in some ways, um, you know, we can say in in China's case, right? Um, you know, nation building, state building were the outcome of a revolution, right? And, and same for Thailand and, and Myanmar as well. Lots of time is it, it is through war and it is through uh, insurgency and counter insurgency that. The state managed to to consolidate um, or failed uh, in in Myanmar's case uh, in terms of building this nation, building this state. Right, right, right. Absolutely, and um, also um, just to to make the transition to to chapter six, uh, dynamics of transboundary economic flows. Um, also, right, the, the consolidation of the state themselves was also done through through these economic um, um, exchanges. Um, either legal or illegal, but you know it. The economy and the the construction of a of a solid economy um, were were important parts in in the process. And um, the the chapter here right brings us to the economic perspective, but um, also specifically zooms in on this cross border economic um, exchange um, of goods and people, uh, mm. and that uh, happens asymmetrically. Um, you know, from one one place to another, and the numbers are different. Um, but here you mentioned two main processes, um, and I was curious what they were and how do they connect with with the state building endeavor as we've seen it so far. Right. Um, so for me to understand the economic dynamic uh, in in this uh, borderland region, then we first have to recognize the asymmetrical dynamic between. China and Thailand as two more advanced economies in comparison with the backward uh, Myanmar uh, economy. So when you have this imbalance of economic development, um, this asymmetrical economic relations, so on the one hand, there is this sort of a pulling effect from both China and uh, Thailand um, in a way that um, um, people tend to migrate from Myanmar to work in Thailand, to work in China, right? And then natural resources also tend to flow from from Myanmar to Thailand, from Myanmar to China. Um, At the same time, you also have these, um, the the spillover 
um, the economic and uh, economic influence from uh, from both China and Thailand in a sense that um, the how should I say like they, there are more um, circulations of, of Chinese currency within Burma uh, because many play, particularly in the borderland region uh, the Chinese currency tend to be used more often than Myanmar jiak. And same with Thai baht. Uh, Thai baht also have some wider circulations around its border, around within Myanmar uh, borderland area. Um, in a sense, so that indicates um, the economic, how should say, the, the economic sovereignty in a sense from uh, from Myanmar's uh, uh, perspective is actually less than what we see on the map. Right? In a way that the Myanmar state's economic sovereignty actually um, has much more limited capacity. Um, in comparison with its two neighboring states. And also during this process, we see that the uh, exploitation of uh, Myanmar's natural resources by uh, actors coming from Thailand, actors coming from China. Um, so many of those borderland and development projects these days we observe uh, in Myanmar, Shang State or Karan State, Kaching State, right? Um, they are uh, mostly carried out through this, you know, the the uh, many of those actors who were, who were actively involved tend to be from China, tend to be from from Thailand. Um, so it was this, how should I say, this asymmetrical uh, relation that we do see that economically speaking, the flow of of, of people, flow of goods, flow of, of of resources, they have a particular pattern in a way that something flow out from Myanmar to its neighboring states, and then something uh, come back to, to Myanmar, mostly in the form of, of finished products, right? Um, in terms of you know, electronic, uh, product, uh, elect- electronic products, in terms of daily uh, con- con- cons- consumer uh, products, etc. but they all tend to be produced in Thailand, produced in China. Uh, so, it, so that's how you see this, you, know, you can... I would not say the symbiotic relation, but it's sort of kind of the 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 one that basically provides these kind of raw materials, etc., the people and labor, and the other produces these finished products and sell it to Myanmar, right? So that is the outcome of this asymmetrical uh, relations. Right, 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 and you know, also uh, of course, relations, um, you know, uh, interstate relations and globalization. I, I would think, um, you know, that allowed for uh, manufacturing plants and you know raw product, raw materials to have these patterns and then come back right into Myanmar as finished products, as opposed to um, to you know um, being manufactured there. So right, um, right. Right. So it's, it's, it's much more common, for example, to see um, the, the extensive use of, 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 of let's say, Chinese uh, economic, um, how should you say, uh, venues uh, for transactions, right? Um, right. Um, so these days, for example, people talk about the, the extensive use of like WeChat Pay or, or, or Alipay, um, because the Myanmar state doesn't have any capacity to regulate those things, right? Um, but it's all through this... Um, uh, transnational uh, economic uh, global globalized uh, economic transaction that um, obviously benefit the more powerful than the, the less one less powerful one. Absolutely, of course, and it also has implications, right, for the international relations um, um, arena in the area, but also you know um, uh, globally speaking and. 
um, you know, to, to give a, a different poll of, of attention, also national identity, right, that forms in these uh, these areas. And I think with that, we can move into chapter seven, right, where you, you offer a comparative um, approach. Um, and the, the chapter is entitled Comparative Nation Building Across Borderland Area. And um, this idea of, of identity in a volatile context is, is quite interesting to me. And also, um, I, I, I think that the, the, the chapter brings up the importance of ethnic connections that will sculpt right, all of these relations and flows and, and conflicts to a certain extent. So, um, you know, I was wondering how the national identity concept plays out in the borderland area you analyze and what are the forces and ideologies at hand um, there? Right. Um, so in this um, chapter, I talked about um, the, the, the role played, different roles are played by, by, by China's nation building project uh, as well as Thailand's nation building project um, on, on the influence uh, on Myanmar, right? So in Thailand's case, um, the... Um, because of the, I mentioned earlier that the, the, the historical and cultural and linguistic ties and that the Thai nation has with many of the Thai speaking uh, you know principalities uh, in Myanmar Shan state um, that's that's the reason why uh, you do have this I mean, obviously not that mainstream but you have this sort of, um, uh, you know uh, pan Thai sentiment uh, you know in in, in in Thailand, in some in, in section of Thai society that emphasizes this kind of connection with them and also the need to support them, right? Um, so, so many times that you do see the um, the identification culturally uh, speaking of, of many of those Shang, uh, you know, principal Shang, Shang, Shang people uh, more with with Thailand because that's also the place that many of them were choose to migrate to, 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 to work and to live there, right? And so in some ways, um, Thailand often is presented as this sort of external, uh, let's say, uh, homeland. Not necessarily like the true, but in some ways the cultural homeland in a way that a lot of people do identify with the Thai culture because it's more linguistically similar to, to many of the Shan population in, 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 in Myanmar. In the China's case, um, the nation-building uh, projects that it in, introduced, for example, this, um, you know, multi-ethnic nation, right? Um, sort of this, sort of the, um, the 50, 56 ethnic groups in China, they're all part of the Chinese nation. And then there's sort of a promise of ethnic, auto- uh, ethnic autonomy, uh, et cetera, right? So this kind of things, uh, people, um, you know, in Western scholarship, for example, people tend to dismiss those things uh, as, 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 as fake. Right? And particularly, I mean, which probably is, is the case that when we look at like, you know, Xinjiang or Tibet, etc., it's more historically uh, content, uh, contested. Yeah. But in this southwestern border, um, people often do com- make comparisons between what's happening in China with what's happening in, in Myanmar, right? So in, in terms of a uh, lot people look at those like sort of, uh, cultural autonomy, uh, provisions in, in China, um, you know, it is, is it is the case that despite, for example, the increasing popularity of Mandarin uh, language, um, there's still, like, you know, uh, the, 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 the teaching of ethnic languages in in, in primary schools in, pla- in in some places, etc. And there's also, at least on the facade, the presentation of of, of ethnic cultural expressions. Um, so that 
And in, in, in contrast with that, and then in, in Myanmar case, it's much more direct, brutal uh, enforcement of Bur- Burmanization, right, through milita- military activities and, uh, and also the banning of the teaching of ethnic languages, etc. Um, so, so that's why um, people do consider that, you know, the, the, the Chinese model as better in comparison with what's happening in Myanmar. You have ongoing insurgencies, etc., um, so the result of that was that people living the same ethnic group we mentioned earlier historically have lots of ties across the border, and they live on the side of they, they live on the Chinese side of the border and tend to identify more with the Chinese state and uh, Chinese nation. And as a result of of this comparison, from what we they they, they observe of what's happening in Myanmar. Right. So that's why I, I looked at this kind of different kind of processes of how different states. Uh, play a different role in the transnational uh, nation building processes in uh, uh, happening in in this region, and then um, so um, I think um, it, obviously the the reality of this is much more is is more messy, right? It's messier than than what we 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 try to to tell. But I think the overall um, sort of logic of things, right, in terms of how Thailand had influence on um, on, on Myanmar's Shan state versus how the China's nation-building uh, projects have implications on the you know, Kachin people and Wa people, and is 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 interesting to tell, right? So, for example, in the in the Wa state, right? I mean, the Wa state effectively um, identify with part of the Chinese, like you know, they use Wa to, you know, kind of, they use also more Mandarin speaking uh, than Burmese speaking, uh, things like that, right? So that so these are all outcomes that we can. We now observe, but that the causal mechanisms is, is actually what I try to identify, identify in this chapter is that it is this comparative kind of a, uh, uh, framework that we cannot understand what's happening in Myanmar. Just look at me myself. We have to look at what's happening in, in China, what's happening in Thailand. Right, right, right. And um, right, we, we also see, I think, in, in this chapter, as well as in the others, but here when we, we kind of think about the ethnic uh, connections, right, um, we, we see the neighborhood effect um, at play um, in, 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 in effect. And it's very, you cannot, in my opinion, right, you cannot tell the story effectively if you don't consider all of these flows and influences and, you know, the, the communication between people and how they identify with one state or another or one policy or another. Mm. Um, exactly. yeah. Yeah, and um, also, but, you know, uh, as you say in Chapter 8, there's also a lot of contestation that happens. Um, so far, you know, we, we talked a little bit about historical trauma and about, you know, the war and, and things like that. But, you know, there's also daily contestation that, that happens, and uh, but also political and, and economic to a certain extent. And Chapter chapter 8 does, does get into that. And um, you do speak about continual contestations at the Myanmar, or China-Myanmar border. Um, and that in itself has an intricate history and it's based on, on, on you know, points that you, you brought up in Chapter 1 and 2. But um, I was wondering, how is Myanmar carving a place for itself, both nationally and internationally, as it feels pressure of all types, both from China and Thailand, whether that's economic, whether that's political, um, you know, it's 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 coming to to it, right? So, um, so this chapter talks about the ongoing uh, insurgency uh, in Myanmar, right? Uh, Myanmar is still the country uh, that um, have uh, 
uh, extensive ethnic armed groups and the, the, the conflict continue to to go on right and and then this is so this chapter particularly talk about the restart of the uh, the militarization of the, of the, of, of the mil- militarized uh, conflict because um, previously there was this uh, ceasefire process um, um, started from the early 1990s and so that means many of those ethnic groups that even though they maintain their arms but they, they decide they sign this document with the Myanmar government and then decide to you know, not fight right so then we do have this uh, almost two decades of relative peace despite the fact they continue to hold their own arms, right, occupy their own territories. But from 2008 onwards, um, um, the Myanmar state um, started to pick on different ethnic armed groups and they tried to eliminate them, right? Um, but they couldn't. Um, or they, they did eliminate some, but did not they manage to do that, do that in others. Um, so so that's, that's when we start to see an uptick of, of militarization, uh, military activities uh, in in this region, right, from um, the, the fightings in Kokan and then the, the fightings in Kachin State, and then and etc. Um, so so since two thousand eight onwards, that the the, the uh, how should I say the, the conflict between um, ethnic armed groups versus the Myanmar military, as well as among many of those armed groups within themselves, has um, has picked up pace. Um, uh, than before, um, so this chapter essentially talked about um, well, what's what, what is hap- what actually is happening uh, during this time, and how do we understand um, the uh, the logics of this uh, the, the, the intensification of a military uh, activities uh, between varieties of uh, armed groups in, in the region, and also I talked about. Um, particularly uh, in the more contemporary period, and then China started to play much more a prominent role in 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 trying to, you know, and um, broker a um, um, some kind of peace dialogue uh, among uh, various ethnic group, ethnic armed groups in in Myanmar. Um, so um, so you know when people talk about the the. Um, the, the peace process in in Myanmar, China played a much more active role uh, in it, and um, because um, some of the big um, ethnic armed groups that ha- they have, you know, as a, during the Cold War period, had more connections with the Communist Party of, 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 of Burma, and that's also why the reason why they have much closer ties with with China. Um, so, um, so that's the reason um, why we have observed, for example, the. Um, the Chinese delegate uh, will be present at many of those peace dialogue, um, uh, peace dialogues, and then um, so that's why you know we, we, we the, the chapter also ponder uh, what will happen in the future um, for this this region that continue to see this sort of this you know, instability and militarization, and whether we will be able to see some type of a uh, um, um, resolution, right? But then at least. Currently, uh, the Myanmar's internal peace process has been stalled. Um, there has not been much progress, um, at least uh, in you know uh, in this region, right? and, and partly because the attention that Aung San Suu Kyi's government initially put on, for example, the twenty first century Panlong Conference, etc., tried to create more domestic peace dialogue. But then, as a result of the uh, Rohingya crisis, which is on the other side of Myanmar's border with Bangladesh, and then much of the, the attention of the Suu Kyi's government 
um, as well as much of the, its political capital has been spent on that rather than focusing on, on, on this side of the border with China uh, and with Thailand. Um, so that's why and the, um, right now there is there's no clear indicator on how uh, the peace process in Myanmar were going to uh, come out, um, right? And then um, the, the, basically there's still remaining this sort of low-intensity uh, conflict in a way that, you know, periodically you will see the two um two two armed group clashed or something like you know, one people died but it's not sort of an active war zone right it's it's kind of different kind of a conflict low intensity uh, conflict uh, continue to to go ahead uh, in right. Myanmar's case yeah right 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 I'm thinking when you when you're saying you know low uh, you know low intensity I'm thinking it's uh, it could be also an an attrition type of of um, yes. contestation right right um, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the armed groups in Myanmar, they, they, they are not, some of them are very small. You know, they probably only have like hundreds something, you know, soldiers. Um, so sometimes they act as, I don't know, like militias for different people, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes they, 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 uh, they, they try to extract uh, resources from, public, from, from, from the population. And they try to tax uh, the, the, the control of particular, um, you know, uh, Goods, right? Sometimes it's it's, it's drugs. Sometimes it's, it's other type of trade, uh, timber trade or whatever, right? So so then so sometimes so the, the reason for that the rationale for the existence um, uh, increasingly become um, not as what they they claim for autonomy or, or other things, right? It's basically for the the economic um, greed in a way, right? For that for their own survival, but also for the benefit of that. The leaders, etc. So, so that's why they, 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 then it becomes a totally different logic for the, the for the armed groups to to, to perpetuate themselves, um, and then also the, 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 you know, the so that's why we, we have to understand that this economic logic in many of those uh, ethnic uh, armed groups that continue to operate uh, in in Myanmar's, uh, in Myanmar's territory. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, and as you say, it's a very complicated um, and intricate, um, you know, sum of forces that are at play there. Whether we're talking about politics or you know these these groups, or you know whether we're talking about history, that um, you know we can read about in the news or you know we can hear about it, but actually knowing the history and the politics of the area, um, it's it's more important and might give a better uh, grasp of what's happening, right? Um, and um, I think also uh, the, in, the, in the concluding chapter, right, you, you highlight the importance of the neighborhood effect and its uh, uh, pivotal role in state and national development, but also you bring up the project of national, of regional, sorry, uh, regional economic integration that was spearheaded by China and sometimes by international bodies, um, if I'm not mistaken, such as um, uh, ASEAN, right, and, and others as well. And um, I, was, I was wondering about the stakes that, uh, you know, we could talk about here, and specifically how can we think of the neighborhood effect as a paradigm that could be instrumental in understanding dynamics in borderland territories across the world. Um, you know, we, we have some in, in Russia, we have some, you know, with, with Ukraine, we have others, right, in, in Asia, also Africa, um, Latin America, um, you know, whether we could use this, this paradigm to, to open up, right, a field of, of understanding. Yeah. Um, so I did um, talk about so, so the, uh, 
the, the comparison of this um, neighborhood effect, right? Not in, in this case, obviously, it's mostly on China and its neighbor, uh, neighboring states in Southeast Asia. But we we can also observe a similar pattern of relations between, let's say, Russia and its nearby, near, near abroad, right? In Ukraine. In, in Belarus and uh, in Central Asia, in Caucasus, etc., um, and same with like the U.S. Uh, with regard regard to Central America, right? Uh, it's the projections of American economic in, uh, influence in, in Central America. Um, so we do see these kind of big power, right? The asymmetrical relation with its neighbors, and often have a you know how should I say imbalanced implications, right? and then usually then the, the, the neighboring states often. Are not necessarily the beneficiaries of of the of the more powerful neighbor, right? Yes, let's put it that way. Um, the um, so on the other hand, I also talk about more contemporarily and uh, how people, for example, are very interested in terms of many of the regionalization that has been uh, spearheaded by uh, by 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 China's uh, increasing uh, sort of amount of capital going abroad, right? Um, so we do observe uh, many, um, let's say. Projects emphasize on connectivity with uh, Southeast Asia, uh, in terms of building of, of highways, in building of railways and uh, dams and other things, right? And, and creation of, of new institutions that uh, will, will facilitate further economic uh, uh, integration. Um, so that will, I, I would say probably that is going to happen um, more intensively in the future, in the years to come. Right, that um, there is going to be more of this type of regional integration that with more of a China uh, hue, right? It's a more Sino-centric uh, style, right? And and partly it's because um, you know, the, the, the economically speaking, um, Southeast Asia, ASEAN, right now is the biggest trading partner for China, and and vice versa. Um, and then. And also, I mean, in the contemporary period, uh, you, we see, you know, particularly during COVID, right? People start talk about, you know, the the, the, the end of globalization, um, and perhaps there's going to be end of globalization in a, in a more conventional sense. But then, um, people do say that um, instead of globalization, right, there might be more regionalization, right? And in a sense, people countries might improve their economic relations much more with each, with the neighboring. States than with far fewer uh, places, um, so that's why um, we do. I, I hope that you know the the and uh, this will become the the, the, the starting point for, for for us to understand in uh, for the changes to come in you know, in, in in the next decade and, and after. Right? And, and lots of things are happening, right? Uh, in, in terms of like the building of high speed rail. Um, network is going to complete in in Laos next next year, right? and then eventually will connect to Thailand, etc. Right? Those are things that are ongoing, right? Um, we don't know yet, right, of what might happen, right? Um, but then there are particular, yeah, perhaps some kind of uh, projections can take that in, in the end there might be more Chinese influence to come to Southeast Asia, and how we can understand that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, it's um, it's an ongoing process. Of course, the the current uh, world um, um, world, I want to say situation, but uh, you know, context, uh, global context, right, also influences the ways in which um, you know infrastructure is developed uh, in Southeast Asia and in Asia in general. So you know, time will tell, but of course, predictions can can be made. 
Um, and I would love to talk more, but I really think we've taken a lot of your time. So, Hi. you know, the, the, the last uh, question I have. an hour and 15 minutes already. <laughs> yes, it flew by. So um, I, was one, I wanted to ask you uh, whether you could tell us more about your current projects. Right. Um, so currently I'm actually, from, as I just mentioned, I think I'm, I'm, uh, in terms of what's, what might happen to understand um, the, the, the um, the changing uh, dynamic of relations between China and Southeast Asia, but also how to understand uh, Chinese influence in Southeast Asia. So um, right now I'm working on a project um, specifically looking at this, um, this, this phenomenon and then, and then try to differentiate between influence as a intended social action versus unintended consequences by a variety of Chinese actors in Southeast Asia. Right. So what I mean by unintended consequences in the sense that people tend often tend, people often tend to assume what's happening in Southeast Asia as a you know deliberate scheme, you know, designed by the Chinese central state to have domination or have other things, etc. But in reality it's not the case. Um, lots of things happening in Southeast Asia they are carried out by a variety of, of actors. Many are private businesses um, for their own profit and other things, right? And, and sometimes the, the state make one policy, but then the outcome of that in Southeast Asia might be totally unintended. Um, so, so that's why I try to differentiate this sort of intended versus unintended, but also differentiate between state and non-state actors uh, in terms of their influence, uh, their presence and the impact uh, in Southeast Asia. So this is going to be uh, my next project I'm currently working on. That's fascinating, and I look forward to, to reading more of it, maybe a new interview on that. And um, I want to thank you very much for taking thank the time you. to talk I to us today. It. Yeah, we, we talked for quite a long time, but I think it's quite good. We covered uh, almost all the questions, and then uh, yeah, we, I think I talked extensively. Um, but- so. <laughs> but you know that that is all about like you 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 really have to to get into details and i'm very happy to 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 listen and you know oh to, thank you very much for having me yes it's sure a pleasure to, to, to talk with you about about this book project but also like let me think like what i will have to do next right and Adi, <laughs> and, then, and hopefully uh, my next project will come out uh, in time absolutely thank you so much dr han thank you victoria